0: Amen. Well, thank you uh, for just engaging that moment, and thank you for being here. Uh, If we've never met before, my name is John. I get to serve as a pastor here, and uh, it is so fun. I was joking with some people earlier, like it's it's ironic. Like the first couple Sundays of September, uh, people will say to me, and maybe I've said it to you, it's like, I didn't know you still went to church here. Like it's amazing to see people come back and be a part of things uh, that maybe were gone for the summer or traveled a lot. And that was definitely us. I had someone come up last Sunday and was like, were you here at all this summer? I was like, I actually was, just not the Sundays you were here. Like, we kind of had that realization, like we hadn't been together for a while. Uh, But one of the trips we took was this summer, Lindy, my wife, her family is from New Jersey. And so think not like dirty New York City, New Jersey. Think like clean uh, horses and farms, New Jersey, like almost Pennsylvania is basically where she's from. And so it's an effort to get out there. It's about a 10 and a half hour drive, but we decided this year we're going to fly. It's going to be a little bit simpler, we said, uh, before we got on the trip. Uh, so we pack up Lennon, our almost 16-month-old, and decided, let's do this. Let's pack up all the stuff. Let's get on the, some planes and let's go over there. So we took a long weekend, and we're just finishing up our trip, and we're checking in. This is like 24 hours uh, before we're supposed to fly out of Newark and fly back to Grand Rapids. We're sitting there, we're going through our phones and Lindsay said, Did you know our flight got canceled? And I was like, Imagine, imagine there was a flight issue in 2022. I just it was hard for me to even picture that, but it was true. It happened to us. Like we were one of the statistics. And so we we had to rebook our flight for the following day. It's about twenty four hours. They just bumped it a day later. So it's like, all right, well, we can make some adjustments. We had to call in and switch some stuff around with both of our jobs and and Lennon's daycare and all this kind of stuff. So we figure all that out. We're headed to the Newark airport the next day, and we're getting there. We get dropped off by a family friend who lives about a half hour or so away from the airport. It all seemed to be working really, really well. We get there. We finally make it through security, which with a one-year-old is just like its own adventure. Like, she's trying to eat people's food, pet people's doggies. Like, she's doing everything you're not supposed to be doing in the security lines, but she's doing it. And we finally make it to our gate, and we walk up and we look up to the screen with hopeful eyes and see, your flight is delayed two hours, and you're gonna miss all your connecting flights after that. And I just was like, get me out of here! I don't even. So I start looking up Enterprise, National, Alamo. I'm like, I'm gonna rent a car. We are putting Lennon in the back seat, and we are driving back to Michigan. Uh, that didn't work because they had no cars available. There was no Uber left to even take us to the rental place. It was just chaos. So finally. We are frustrated, all three of us. Lennon's crying. I'm crying. Lindsay might as well be crying. I mean, we are just all frustrated and aggravated at each other, at United, at everybody we could find. Like, no one was being helpful. And so we find one of those, like, uh, breastfeeding pod stations they put in certain airports, and we just decide we're just going to go camp out in that. So she gets the code, and we're just all sitting there just, like, sad. Like, we we are not having a good day. So we have to call the family friend. She comes back to get us. We go back to stay at her house. But on the way back, we both have this kind of parental, like, theophany. This moment where God's like, I'm going to show you something you need to do. And I was like, okay, I'm doing it. And I literally look at Lindsay. She looks at me, and we're like, we have no milk for Lennon tonight. Like, we're going to be here for another full day. We have got. We don't have enough food for her. We don't have any breakfast food that she can eat. We, just, we have nothing because we thought we were going to leave a day and a half ago. And so we're on the way. Now, one thing you need to know is Lennon is a fancy little kid, so she needs fancy milk. All right? She's got fancy pre- pea protein infused milk we have to buy for her. And so we literally are like looking up whole foods, Target. I mean, think of any fancy grocery store. We're trying to find it on this drive in the middle of New Jersey. We've never been there. So finally we find a place we go in, they have like one or two of things of these milk and I'm just like buy it. So we buy it. Get it. And she goes to bed later that night. We all sleep happy. But what I was shocked by is was reflecting on that trip later, like maybe you've done, is how I immediately put first things first. Like when you're driving and you're you're headed somewhere, it's like, what are the priorities? Maybe for you, it's finding like the restaurant. You're like, you got to get to the restaurant first. Or we got to make sure I stop at this really nice gas station on this specific highway. Like as a, as a driver, as a parent maybe, you have like an order of priorities. And for me, since my daughter's so young, my priority is I want to sleep at night. Uh, I don't know if you relate to that, but like I want to sleep. So that means she goes to bed full and fed. And so I was like, we got to get milk. That's priority number one, get some milk. So we finally get the milk. And what struck me about that was how when you look at the rest of my life, so if you take Lennon out of the equation, I would have put a lot of other things first besides going to the local Target and buying milk. Like, I would have been like, okay, this lady that we're saying, she's got a pool. Maybe I should go buy some swim trunks so I can enjoy the pool. Or where's the nearest, like, place to get some comfort Mexican food? Maybe I should go find that. Like, I would have a lot of other priorities other than searching on my almost dead iPhone, like, for Lennon's milk. Where, where, where can I find this? And I find it really interesting, like, even just talking to so many people, in our church, and we're feeling this in our family, like as we go into this fall, there are so many things that want your attention. Have you felt this? There's so many things that want your time. If you got an email address, you've got it full of things, events, calendar dates, meetings, Zoom calls, stuff that you have on your calendar that is slowly filling up all of your space and all of your time. And one of the things that really struck me Especially this summer, as, we're praying, as I was preparing and kind of praying through the series we're starting today, was how dangerous it is when we don't put first things first spiritually. How I have seen person after person, I've sensed this even in my own life, who begin to put second and third things first and end up losing their way spiritually. Other things crowd in, uh, they give space to other priorities, other relationships, and slowly after time, they find themselves disconnected from Jesus, not aware of his presence with them, feeling like they don't have the same maybe spiritual power, their prayer life is dry and stale, and it's all because a matter of priority and order got out of whack. And what I want to talk about today and where we're going in this series is how do you get to a place where God's presence is the center point of your life? How do you get back to that place? How do you return to that place? Because if the last couple of years have taught us anything is that we're less in control of our lives than we think, is that the world and society is changing way quicker than we think, and thirdly, there are things in our lives that we can control when it comes to our spiritual journey, and we should control them. So I want to take you to a story. Uh, Maybe you've read the story. Maybe it's brand new and unfamiliar to you. It's in Exodus 33. So if you have a Bible or device, this this is time to go there. You'll see the reference on the screen. Uh, But in the middle of this Exodus journey, so literally God's people, Israel, liberated from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. I mean, think back-breaking work. Some of you have done some manual labor jobs that were hard. Just picture generation after generation, 400 years' worth of your family being oppressed, enslaved, harassed, not able to practice your faith in kind of an open way. This was their reality. God frees them through the leader, Moses. And then in the middle of this whole story, listen to Exodus 33, verse seven. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. Who are my camping people? That's like fun for you. Anyone else? Okay, you're weird, but that's fine. Uh, you're apparently like Moses, uh, now, Moses used to take a tent, pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it, this kind of a nickname he gives it, the tent of meeting. And it's a place where he would literally go to meet with God. You'll find that out here in the next couple of verses. Anyone inquiring of the Lord, so people that had a need, people that knew they had questions or unresolved tensions in their family, in their life, they would go to this tent of meeting where the Lord's presence was outside the camp. In verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, this is literally God's tangible presence, moving with the people of Israel, this pillar of a cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud, standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood, if you've got your Bibles open, what's that next word? Just say it out loud with me. They all stood and worshipped. All right, perfect. Somebody's here. I love that. They all stood and worshipped. This is literally their response to the presence of God, each at the entrance to their town. I mean, picture this. This would be bizarre. This would be worth writing about, okay? So if you live in a neighborhood or you've got some people on your street, this is like God's presence tangibly coming to the center of your neighborhood and then all of your neighbors empty out their kitchens, get out of the man cave, leave the garage, and they're standing on the front porch worshiping the Lord. I mean, that is quite a vision. Like, that's a powerful community picture right there. I mean, Byron Center may have a lot of churches, but I've never seen that. Like, that, that is something we have never seen before. But this is like the daily reality for the people of Israel. They're getting out and everyone's just leaving their house, standing at the front door and worshiping the Lord's presence who's, who's right there, tangible to them. In verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. What makes this story really powerful to me is If you have a device and you're reading the scriptures or you have a physical Bible like I do, I'm old school, Exodus 32 is actually a really powerful chapter as well. The the chapter that happens before this is literally Moses is on the mountain. God is handwriting community guidelines for them to thrive in the wilderness. Baseline things like don't kill each other. I mean, It sounds pretty basic, but the cultures around them, nations around them, that was not assumed. Uh, Things like don't steal someone else's spouse. In the cultures around them, that was not assumed. And God's saying, be sexually faithful to one person. Be in a covenant relationship with one person. He's handwriting these guidelines for them. And while Moses is doing this, the people of Israel are so impatient and so just craving, worshiping something, they literally start taking off their jewelry, bracelets, rings, throwing them in a melting pot, and they create a golden calf, and they begin to worship the golden calf. And it's a bizarre story. You can go back a chapter before what we read and see this play out. But what happens is God's justice comes down because he doesn't want to share worship with a golden calf. Share worship with the idols that we've created. He ends up thousands of people are killed that day. Thousands of Israelites are lost in kind of retribution for this idolatry. I mean, you can look at this as really one of the darkest days in Israel's history. This is awful. If you're looking back generations later, it's like, remember the golden calf thing? and everybody, uh, Yeah, I remember. This is a story. And on the heels of this, Moses sets up a tent. Why? Because the tent of meeting was a place where his, his meeting with God was set on the calendar. It was an appointment with God's presence. There's actually a place uh, in Israel. They've kind of recreated this whole scene. This is a very close depiction to what this kind of basic tent of meeting would have looked like. I mean, it's not that impressive. I mean, I don't really camp that often. That doesn't feel like it's very secure. But you can see, like, literally there's an altar and there's a tent. That was it. He kind of set it outside the camp to kind of distinguish it from everyone else's tent. And then he would go there to meet with the presence of God. Side note, while the people are are worshiping, note that Moses goes first. If you're a leader, uh, if you have influence over somebody right now and you're kind of sitting here listening to all this, Just a reminder that leaders have to go first. The thing is, I I can't worship God for you, but I can go first in my worship. I can't give for you. I can't sacrifice your time for you, but I can do that. I can choose that. Leaders model the way. We model the way when it comes to the presence of God and making sure that's first priority. What strikes me, though, is that from the very first couple pages of the Bible, this this is the tension, this is, this is the question. Will you center your life around the presence of God or not? Because literally, Adam is created. like He has a relationship with his creator. And then it says that their garden was created. Literally this place where God could meet with Adam and Eve on a daily basis. It's a place of continual presence and encounter and relationship. But so many of us don't feel like we have that. Why? Because at the center of our lives is often not the presence of God, this really hits me because I look back at my year, maybe like you have. I look back to March, uh, which March is kind of an interesting month. Like, it's right before Easter, but March is also kind of like in the middle of a semester. For many of us, March and April are like a push to like the end of school, the end of a quarter, whatever it is, and it was March for me, and I just had experience, and I shared this with Lindsay and other people in my life. I was like, I just feel like spiritual restlessness. Like, I don't I don't have the answers. I'm not sure what to do in this next chapter of life and leadership. And I know I want to be intentional. Like with my next 10, 15 years, how do I really become intentional with how God's made me and how he's wired me and and what he's calling me to? And so, like anybody else, I decided, why not spend 48 hours in sunny, tropical Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? And so that's what I did. Like I've I've got a friend there who's kind of a spiritual director of sorts, a coach. He's also a pastor, and he just... Sits with leaders and helps process some of those feelings and some of those decisions. And so I go, and for the next 48 hours, from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., we're literally going through times of prayer. He's giving me prophetic words and dreams. He's like processing all this stuff. We're going through personality assessments and consultations. We're driving around, seeing things in the city and having conversations. It was intense. It was like some of the most intense couple days of my life. But I'm driving home, and here's what really struck me. I left that with just pages and pages of notes and journal reflections and questions to ask and action items to, to kind of move forward when I got home. And one of the biggest things that came out of that time for me was I noticed something I'm often tempted to do. Maybe you felt this. I often, in seasons of crisis, in seasons of feeling that discontent, even in good seasons, to lead my life, my marriage, my family, my, my journey with Christ even our church, out of a place of success and competence and strength. I like those things. I like feeling successful. I like feeling strong, and I like feeling competent. Like those things, and maybe you relate to that. You're like, uh, yeah, aren't you supposed to be all those things? And God kind of hit me with that. He said, John, your temptation is to lead out of those things, but what if I'm calling you to lead out of something much different? Here's where it gets interesting. What I felt like God said and kind of tried to communicate through this friend and through other people who later affirmed some of this thing, these things was that Jesus was calling me to lead out of a place of hunger and thirst for his presence, of weakness, of fragility, of not having every answer and not having everything figured out. we just saying this. It's in my weakness, God, you are strong. I hate those lines. I'm like, how about in my strength, you're strong? Like, that would be good. But in my weakness... God, you're strong. And that just hit me because it started to, to force me to go on a journey. What kind of legacy am I leaving as a husband, as a dad? Is it about how much I succeeded or how much I loved Christ? What, what kind of legacy are we leaving as a church? Are we just people who love to meet together and do things nice in the community but don't actually have like a driving hunger and thirst for God's presence in our everyday lives? Like what kind of people are we? It started to push me to go on a journey of how much I don't value the presence of God. And that was hard for me to say, that was hard for me to write. It's hard for me to say, but I think we have to go on the same journey. I think God's inviting us on the same journey to discover how much we don't value the presence of God. And I don't say that as like a, con- a con- condemnation thing or like even a rebuke thing. Just like I'm on the journey. I think all of us need to go on the journey. If you call Center Church your home, like this is a journey. I think God has us on throughout this series, and I love what kind of theologian writer A.W. Tozer says about this. He literally writes, I stumbled across this, preparing, I want the presence of God himself, or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. Anyone else feel that? Like, like, I felt that. I read that. I was like, oh, man, that yes. I want God himself, or I don't want anything to do with the structures and the services and the programs, unless God is here and in it. Like, what are we doing? He says, I want all that God has, or I don't want any. Like, that's the kind of hunger and thirst that you see modeled by Moses and the people of Israel and the same hunger and thirst that God was calling me into on that drive home from Pittsburgh. But the question remains, like, what gets in the way of that? Like, all of us would nod and be like, yeah, I want more of God in my life. Like, duh, why, why are you doing a whole series on this? Like, yes, that, that would be nice. I would love more tangible expressions of the Holy Spirit at work in my world or in my workplace or even my my family or, or my drive home from school. Like, yeah, I, I want all that. I think what often gets in the way, though, is simply our needs. Like, you could say social media gets in the way. Sure, you could say, well, it's just a circumstance of the world or maybe it's political events or current issues. Like, yeah, I'll give you all those. But but I think what often comes in the way between us and truly experiencing the tangible presence of God in our lives is often just our needs. We put our needs in a place where we're trying to figure those out. It's like if you got a situation with a kid, like I was joking with Peter earlier, we both were up at 3.30 a.m. this morning for different reasons. He was driving home from from an event, and I was up with Lennon, who, which was a total joy. I'm, I'm just like the most happy I'm ever at 3.30 in the morning. Trust me. I was not happy. I was like, are you serious? I like to get up in like two hours, and, and we're up at 3.30 trying to put her back down. So I say this from a place of like, I get that. But I think often, even with our kids, we can put parenting issues and decisions and tough moments ahead of the Lord's presence. Say, well, if I just figured that out, then I'd be closer to God. Like, it's, it's this kid's fault. Or if I could just get them to 18 and, like, out of my house, it would be much calmer, much more peace, much more stability. And I could really pursue God spiritually. But what if the answer was not resolution And more answers. What if the answer is more of God's presence and an awareness, friends, of your need, of our need for God in our lives? The same thing pops up with security. Maybe you're in a season of transition. I know for some of you, maybe you're in college or maybe you're even heading towards retirement age, and, and you're trying to figure out, like, what are my next steps? Like, where am I going from here? What's my calling? What has God wired me for What's my legacy going to be? How am I going to leave these grandkids and maybe even maybe great-grandkids behind, and what am I leaving for them? Like, we get caught up in answering those questions. We get caught up in the need. It's like, well, I've just got to figure out how do I become more secure? Okay, I'm going to get a different job, or I'm going to kind of double down on my retirement investing, or I'm going to move school districts or move houses, or if I just get that internship or that residency, everything will be magically okay that may be the answer, but what if the truest answer the deepest need you have is more of God's presence in your life, a tangible expression of who he is? Some of us do this with health. It's like, man, if I could just be healthy, like if I could leave the doctor's office and not have like a list of things I need to be doing, more pills to take, more surgeries upcoming, if I could just leave with a positive doctor's note, and I could be physically well, I'd feel good when I wake up on Monday morning, then I would really pursue God. Then I would actually experience his presence. But what if the answer was not just immediate healing and physical kind of resolution? What if the answer was in those moments of despair and feeling like you don't have what it takes and, and you're always going to be sick or always in pain, you just heard the voice of God say, I'm here. I'm with you. My presence is right there. I've wired you to hunger and thirst after me. That's why I love this line in verse 7. Maybe you caught this, right? Literally, the the writer says, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Do you have needs today? Do you have any questions for God today? Are the things you're inquiring of the Lord today, the answer is not to just sit down and come up with a solution. The answer is to run to God's presence. It's to center your life. It's to begin to orbit around who he is. That itself is the answer. I I don't know maybe who this is for, but today I'm preaching to someone that's hungry. I'm preaching to somebody that's thirsty today for more of God, for more of his presence in my life. I'm preaching to myself today. Like I'm preaching to myself because this is my desire. Scholars refer to this section and some of these sections on worship, and we're gonna talk about the tabernacle and a lot of other things uh, throughout the rest of the series, but they call this anticipatory worship. Do not say that like five times fast. It just gets really confusing. But anticipatory worship is literally worshiping before you have an answer. Worshiping before the need is met. Saying, God, you are just worthy of worship just because you're God. You don't have to answer everything. You don't have to fix everything. You don't have to just solve this problem. You are worthy of worship simply because you're God. And literally you can see Israel start to form their community around that truth of anticipatory worship on raising the value of hunger and thirst for the presence of God. Later, this tent of meeting becomes established and all the 12 tribes of Israel begin to gather around a fully constructed, structured out tabernacle, this place where God's presence dwelled. And day and night, there was worship and prayer going forward because the most important thing for them was the presence of the Lord in their midst. That's one of the reasons like we want to try out having some of our elementary kids in service today. Not just because they broke out and they're really smart and proud of that, but because our leaders felt like we want to raise the value of worship for our kids too. Like If we say this is important, we have to make that important for all generations. And so we tried that out. We're trying to, to move that forward. And I think one of the interesting things about this, the lesson you learn from Israel, if you study the book of Exodus and even study what happens after, the lesson you learn is that the prerequisite for the presence of God arriving in your life, like any Christian I talk to, anybody even like kind of aware of the Lord, they're like, yeah, I'd like more of God's presence. The prerequisite for that is not a perfect moral record. Like you may be waiting, like if I'm just holy enough, God will show up and, and really kind of come into my life. And I don't think that's it. I don't think you see Israel modeling that. It's also not more theological training and education. Like, I'm in my master's right now. I'll be done in December. I am so excited because I'm so bad at school. But I felt like God wanted me to do it, so I'm obeying him in that. But there have just been moments over and over again, like, this, this could not make you a better Christian. This could make you, like, really skeptical and really sick of doing homework. Like, that's sometimes how I feel. More theological training, going and saying, okay, I guess I got I to gotta get a master's degree in theology in order to truly understand the, God, the presence of God in my life. I don't think those masters are bad. I just don't think that's going to solve the problem. And I also don't think perfect church attendance and giving all your money and serving selflessly, I don't know if those will help it arrive in your life. I think the biggest thing we learn from Israel's story here in Exodus is that the only prerequisite to really experiencing God in your life is an awareness of your need. It's being honest enough to say, God, I need you. I am not strong enough. I am not competent enough. I don't have all the answers, and I need you in my life. I want to surrender to that. I'm I'm, I'm going to make some space for that in my life. I'm I'm going to raise a level of my awareness. Like We have to go on a journey of discovering how much we don't value the presence of God in our lives, or else we'll never truly understand what it means to be a disciple. So the question is not just about what did Israel learn, what do we learn from them. What does this mean for us as a church? Like, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go way more specific, way more detailed on this. But to kind of crack at an answer to the question, back in March when I started to to journal about some of this and just sense, like, this was the journey God wanted me on for sure. And I thought our church, I began to write about, like, because we kind of planned series three to four months in advance. And we had already kind of mapped this one out in the spring. And we came away with a title we thought was really good. And we were like, we should call it Make Space. Like, you know, like make space for God in your life, make room for Him to move, like not just be okay with how things are. And I was like, Yeah, that makes sense. We all kinda left that room, like feeling consensus and feeling in agreement about that. And I started to drive home and I felt like God's spirit just gently, kindly, kind of pressed on something with that. I was like, I really like this title. This is cool. I'm excited about the series. I can't believe we gotta wait till September. Like <laughs> I had to preach a whole other thing. Like, I wanted to preach it right then and there. I just was so passionate about it. And God said, or a thought God said, I sensed him say, like, in my spirit, like, John, do you really just want to make space and make room for me in your life? Like, is that what you're after? Like, God, I will meet with you, but it has to be between 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday. You know, like, I've got freedom, but not too much freedom. You know, like, I've got a meeting at 3, so could we meet up at 4, like, like I'm, I don't want to just make space for God. I don't want to just make space and carve out some room in my already packed calendar for God. I felt like God is just saying the invitation, John, for you and for center is to give God the space and give him the whole room. Just let him have the room. Let him have the space. Don't, don't be content with carving out some time to meet with your creator. Let his presence mark every single thing that you do. Every single thing you're a part of. Like I dream about a church where people show up early to pray. I dream about a church where people listen and engage worship music on the way to the office or to school. I I dream about a church where people show up hungry, thirsty, ready to experience and to give their best to God. I dream about a church where people agree with the word out loud. Some of you are amen people. Like time to wake up. You know, like let's do this together. Like agreeing with what God's word says, I dream about a church where people make God's presence their legacy. Like what's most remembered about them at a funeral or a memorial is not the job they had, how good they were at a sport, what they, the kind of stories that they told or how they made people laugh, but people who were marked by God's presence. They were hungry. They were thirsty. Their grandkids knew they were hungry and thirsty. Their, their siblings knew they they're hungry and thirsty for God. Their church knew it. Their their friends knew it. That the priority was just so blatantly obvious to everyone around them that they valued the presence of God. They were hungry and thirsty. Jesus literally promises us, he says this in the Sermon on the Mount, just incredible teaching on the kingdom of God. He literally says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you want to be filled? Like, do you want to be marked by the presence of God? I, I want that, but that means I've got a hunger and thirst after the right things, to put first things first. And I I think that's for us the invitation this fall. So the the burning question, I can't answer it for you, I would love to, but I cannot, is how will you make God's presence your pursuit this fall? How will this fall be a a benchmark where you look back and say, I remember that. Our family, we remember that. Our marriage, I remember that. Our church, I remember that. There, There was a time or we just decided, God, you're the most important thing again. Like We're not just making space and making room for you in our already busy lives. We're gonna let you have, the, have our life. We're gonna let you have the room, let you have the calendar, let you have the, the space, let you have the church. And so that's the call. That's the invitation. Two simple ways you can do that. If you're like, I don't even know what to do from here. I want that, but I'm not sure how to, how to move forward. Two simple things. One would be just keep engaging this series. Just, just stay, just stick around, be a part of this. Like you can go to GR.com slash make space. We've actually built like an online devotional to guide you through. You can do it with your spouse, you can do it with your kids, you can do it by yourself or with a group or uh, maybe gather some people on Sunday before church. You can kind of journey through some of these scriptures a little bit deeper. There's incredible content our, our staff and leaders have worked on just for you. There's some hard copies as well that are still left from first service because they were savages. There's a bunch left though. Uh, if you want to grab one, you like to write like I do, uh, right at the New here desk as you leave. The second would be, uh, and this is a place I have come to almost on a daily basis, but I think it takes all of us to begin the journey of just saying, God, I I confess my need for your presence. Like it's not enough. To just show up to church and then to leave. I, I want to be marked by who you are. I want you to literally take up residence in my life. Have the keys to know know where the things are. Like, I, I want you to have all of that. I want you to just be on the front porch of my life. Like, I want to let you in. I want let you change things. I want let you transform things. It may just begin within these next few moments, just confessing, God, I need you. I I maybe you're like me you just live with an unawareness of who god is and how he wants to work and you say god i want to get back to that place and so what i'd love to do is take a moment to pray over you and for you and then we're actually going to respond with a song really a prayer we're going to sing it out together one more song and then we'll be done but i'd love to just invite you into that and kind of set up that moment so would you pray with me as we do that god thank you thank you for your kindness uh that with these invitations it's not rebuke it's not condemnation it's not you being disappointed in us it's you looking down as a loving father saying i have so much more and i pray god you'd give i know there's somebody here there's a family there's a couple there's an individual here that is hungry and thirsty for more of you that they are not content with status quo Christianity but want you to truly renew and revive who they are the community they're part of the church that we're in so God I pray right now would you meet that person would you fill that hunger and thirst for you with your presence would you allow us to go on the difficult honest journey of realizing we don't value and we confess our need we repent of our of our own self sufficiency we say we're sorry for the times that we have put second and third things above you We come before you, God, with just fresh desire. We surrender to you. We sacrifice our lives to you. We give ourselves to you again today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.